0: i yeah. you
1: morning we want to start our service off with baptism this morning and what a great way that is to start our service off you know baptism is just a picture of what happens on the inside of our hearts and lives uh, that when we die to sin just like Christ died uh, we're risen to walk in a newness of life so let me share with you this scripture from Romans chapter 6 verse 3 and verse 4 it says do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus we're baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And we don't believe that baptism saves us, but we believe that it is an obedience uh, that we do this and what Christ did himself in being baptized. So Carson Pearson comes this morning, Carson. He's coming to be baptized. Carson, what is your profession of faith?
0: Jesus
1: Christ. Upon your profession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Him in baptism, risen to walk in the newness of life. Amen. Amen. And we're so excited for him. You continue to keep him uh, in your prayers. uh, And uh, we've got another one that we'll be doing next Sunday. And so we praise the Lord for that. I just want to welcome all of those who, who are there online, too. Don't forget that we are on Facebook there and on uh, Twitter, Twitter at HBC Tullahoma. We're on Highland Baptist, Telahoma on YouTube and then our phone live streaming. Uh, be sure to give us the thumbs ups, the hearts, the likes, the shares there. Be sure to subscribe uh, to YouTube. That way it'll just help to get the word out. Even more. Uh, we have our, if you'll go to our church website uh, at com it's there that you can download our worship bulletin for the day. If you need one of these, our ushers will be glad to come and give you one of these, uh, or you can find them in the windowsills or at the doors uh, this morning. Uh, we also have children's worship bulletins there in this windowsill. Uh, all of this you can download at com under the info tab, as well as the prayer list. And if you want one of the prayer lists in person, they're on the table in the stand. Uh, out here in the hallway. So we just wanted to say welcome. Thank you so much uh, for joining with us. Uh, Pastor Matt's going to do our missionary moment uh, in just a little while after uh, we hear a song here, and then I'll be back down to lead our choir uh, as we sing a special this morning. So quick change <laughs> this morning. Uh, but glad to see everybody this here, and hope you have a blessed day for the mic. Yeah, y'all come on up.
2: Yeah, last Sunday when he did the baptism, I didn't know how quick he was going to get back in here. But he showed up. He did well. Y'all join the choir this morning as we sing our first hymn. It'll be Heavenly Sunlight, be 424 in their hymnals, and and the words are on the screen. Uh, But uh, why don't y'all stand? Y'all been sitting a while. Stand and join us as we sing Heavenly Sunlight. Ladies,
3: walking in sunlight all of my journey over the mountains through the deep vale, Jesus has said.
4: church. So the missionary moment this week, as we pray for Steve and Tony Chambers, as they serve in the largest city in the United States, a city that is a cultural business engine for the entire nation and world, New York City. Lord have mercy on them, right? So they were, especially those Mets and Yankees, Oof, rough. they were sent, I got to get out of there, sorry. They were sent by their small Alabama church plant in Grace City Church, New York City, to reach those who need Christ. The chambers intentionally began the church by meeting in small groups since they were in their neighborhood, were skeptical of Christianity. Meeting in groups allowed for Steve and others in his church to build deeper relationships and address specific questions about their faith. So let's pray, with, pray for them, as well as the other missionaries that faithfully serve across uh, this nation and also internationally as they share the, the love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessings upon them. Uh, who serve we ask your blessings upon those who are overseas who are here even in the states that serve as missionaries church planters and Lord we just pray for Steve and Tony Lord that you would bless the works of their hands father for your glory God that many would come to know Christ there in New York City God we pray that as they gather for worship every other week that Lord they would see fruit and that they would see that uh, as the harvest is ready, Lord, that you would also send workers and other believers to join them in this process of, of sharing the gospel and making disciples. God, thank you for uh, what you do in, in our lives. And God, we just pray uh, also the words of Paul in Colossians uh, chapter 4, where he, he tells uh, the church, uh, the city of Colossae lo- there, Lord, to, to pray that you would open a door for us, Lord, to share the word. And, God, that we would speak the mystery of Christ. And, Father, uh, we are just encouraged today, Father, by the baptism of such a young uh, young of Carson. And, Lord, we pray that, Lord, as he is baptized, that many would be encouraged by his testimony to also uh, come to know you as their Lord and Savior. God, we thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I do have one quick announcement. And... Actually, a couple before I forget. Uh, Also, um, as Awana begins to start up this year, thank you for all those who have volunteered for Awana uh, this year, and also parents, please begin to think about and register your children. You can either online or on paper. Um, We have registration cards here at the church, and so you can ask for one of those. And also, bring your kids on uh, September seventh at five fifteen. We're going to have our we're going to start our Awana program off, and we're going to start at 5.30 sharp, I have been told. So please be here uh, by 5.15 and have all your paperwork filled out so kids can start at 5.30 and have another awesome year of Awana. And so without AWANA, you know, I think if you aren't serving in some way at the church and you would like to serve, Awana is a great place to be involved in. And also be a part of ministering to students like Carson, who has been through Omana, who went to camp with us, who, who has heard uh, the story of the gospel and has believed the gospel. And so we pray that kids will not just hear it, but believe. And so uh, it's an opportunity to be, make an impact in students' lives and kids' lives so that you can, uh, you know, maybe one day, you know, continue to uh, teach them and help them and shepherd them in their walk with the Lord. And so. Uh, if you got any questions, you can please see Miss Wana or see Miss She is Miss Wana. Linda, <laughs> Linda Miller, wherever she's at. I don't see her, but she is Miss Wana. And so, uh, also uh, Pastor Jim as well. And also for students, uh, we will also meet tonight at five, and we have a wonderful uh, guest speaker, Miss Samantha Norman's going to be sharing her testimony. So please uh, be there for that and come prepared with lots of questions because she likes questions, right? So.
2: All right, thank you. Uh, thank you, Brother Matt. I think he has the same problem I do. When I stand up, my brain sits down. <laughs> Y'all join the choir now as we sing Victory in Jesus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 57 says, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's praise Him with Victory in Jesus. Ladies. <laughs> sermon. Join us in singing 430. Children's Church will be gathering over here during the song on this side of the piano side. But uh, stand as we sing 430, Sunshine in My Soul.
1: this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 22 through chapter 18 and verse 14, and we're going to go through as much of this as we can this morning. Uh, You'll notice that my message is entitled this morning, Death, Taxes, and Humility. What do all those things have in common? (laughs) We don't like to talk about any of them. (laughs) We don't like to talk about death and we certainly don't like to talk about taxes. And humility presupposes that there's pride in our hearts and our lives that we have to deal with. And we don't like to talk about that uh, either. And so uh, that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at the life of Jesus and what he has to say about these things that we should be talking about in our hearts and our lives. So Matthew chapter 17, verse 22 and verse 23 is where we're going to begin. So if you would, let's stand as we read God's word in honor of his word. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you this morning for your word and for your truth. And Father, I pray that as we hear from your word, may you speak to us very clearly, that if there's even one who's here or one who's watching online who doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, may they come to the place to trust in him by faith today. And Father, for those of us who have already trusted by faith in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see some practical truths that we need to deal with in our own lives uh, about these three areas of death taxes and humility and father I pray that you'll be glorified and honored through all of this uh, that we're going to look at in these verses in Jesus name we pray amen and you be seated you know we said a while ago that there's uh, all three of these things we don't like to talk about death taxes or humility but for as long as we've lived we've died I mean, it's a simple uh, matter of fact. Uh, we will all die. We will all lose someone that we love. Uh, we will all grieve. Nobody is immune. It is something we all live with. And yet still, uh, we, we still find death and dying and grief so difficult to often talk about. Uh, we're no strangers to death, though. I mean, you think about the last 110 years. Uh, we've witnessed death on a major scale with two world wars, a, a war in Korea, a war in Vietnam, major flu epidemic in those last 110 years, and now COVID-19 and all the effects that this brought and people who have died from it. And yet we've never so often been taught to, to openly discuss and process the difficulty and the complexity uh, of those emotions that we deal with that come along with death and dying and, and grieving. You know, we've, in, we've been encouraged to deal with the trauma of death. By embracing the stiff upper lip, just have a stiff upper lip, you know, uh, be calm, carry on, everything's gonna be okay. Uh, But it's not always that way. Uh, A woman took her husband to the doctor's office, and after his checkup, the doctor said, Well, your husband, he's suffering from a very serious infection. And the husband, who was very hard of hearing, he said, What did he say? And the wife said, Well, he said, You're sick. The doctor went on, and he said, but there is hope, he said. You just have to reduce his stress each morning. Give him a healthy breakfast. Uh, Be pleasant. Be nice. Be kind Uh, for lunch and dinner. Make him his favorite meal. Uh, Don't discuss your problems with him. It'll make his stress uh, worse. Don't yell at him or argue with him. And said, most importantly, just cater to your husband's every whim. If you can do this, your husband, uh, for for the next six months to a year, I think your husband will have a good chance for a complete recovery. The husband said, what did he say? And his wife said, he says, you're going to (laughs) die. We don't like to talk about death. We also don't like to talk about taxes. Uh, Someone said this, that the difference between death and taxes is death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I love tax season, said nobody ever. (laughs) Someone once said this, when I die, I want to be cremated, and I want someone to send my ashes to the IRS with a note that says this, this is all that remains, now you have it all. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we don't like to talk about humility, as we said a while ago, because inevitably that means that we need to talk about our issues of pride. Someone once said, humility is the ability to act ashamed when you tell people how wonderful you are. You know, we don't like death. We don't like taxes and we don't like humility because of what they cost. So what did Jesus say about death and taxes and humility, and what can we learn about them? Well, let's look first at death. He speaks about that in these first two verses we've read, in verse 22 and verse 23. This is Jesus' second major prediction in Matthew's Gospel of his suffering and his death, and there's going to be more to come as we continue through the life of Jesus. And the first time, and this time, the disciples didn't get it. I mean, they just didn't want to talk about you're going to die. I mean, we've been taught all our life, they were saying, the Messiah is coming to deliver us from this Roman oppression. Uh, He's coming to free us. And and you're talking about death and suffering. And and so Jesus was preparing these 12 men. Uh, Because of its enormous importance, uh, Jesus drilled this truth about death and resurrection into his disciples. Now, we just read there that he said, I'm going to die, and then three days later I'm going to be resurrected. But they didn't get past the word, I'm going to die. That's all they could think of. That's all they could hear. They didn't hear the rest about, uh, I'm going to be resurrected. At least they weren't focused on that. It's absolutely essential though, not only for them, but also for us that we grasp the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because our eternal destiny depends upon grasping that truth. The fate of the Christian message depends on believing that truth. The fate of the world, uh, moral truth and justice depends on people grasping and believing that truth. So Jesus got along with his disciples with this pivotal message moment in his ministry. Uh, He's left the area of Caesarea Philippi that we talked about last week uh, in the north country there where he'd been on the Mount of Transfiguration uh, where he was safe. And he's headed now towards Galilee. And then from Galilee we're going to move right on on his journey to Jerusalem. Uh, The cross is sitting right before his face, in essence. But notice, he's still moving about quietly. Matthew says that Jesus moved uh, about in order to avoid the crowds, and yet he was moving closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer and closer to the cross. And and he needed uh, to concentrate on these disciples. He knows he only has a short time left with them to drill in these facts that he has to die and he has to arise from the dead. And so he continues repeating and reiterating from this point forward uh, about his death and about his resurrection. Because it was contrary to all their hopes. It was contrary to all their expectations. It was different from everything they had ever heard or everything they had ever been taught. Because the Messiah was thought to be a Messiah a power of sovereign rule not a messiah who had to suffer and die in order to be in order to save people and so jesus taught his disciples that that word they're taught in the greek in the tense of it is an imperfect Uh, That is, he continued to teach them, uh, to keep right on teaching them. It was a continuous process. It's almost like he's pulling uh, one aside and then another and then two and then four and then five and, and even then the whole group. And he taught and he taught drilling these facts about the death and the resurrection into them. And so Jesus... Uh, delivered himself up to be crucified. He he was enforcing that he was dying as a willing sacrifice, not as some hopeless martyr, uh, not as a mistaken man who thought he was the Messiah. He was dying to redeem us like God had planned all along. And and so his death had been deliberately planned in the purposes of God, and he was willingly dying to fulfill that purpose. So the disciples, uh, they just rejected what they didn't want to see. Uh, They had been taught all their lives this about the Messiah. Jesus, though, had taught them the kingdom was at hand, ready to be established. So in their minds, they're thinking, how can the kingdom be established if you're the Messiah and you're going to die? How can that possibly happen? Uh, And and so what we see is they failed to see uh, the various stages of the kingdom. Apparently, what we see is they began to spiritualize his death and his resurrection. Uh, By death and resurrection, uh, what did he mean? Uh, Did he mean to them that he had to die to self, being shamed and discredited by the leaders before he would be riled up enough to, to rise up and establish his kingdom and free them? Uh, Did he mean that he had to die to self, rejecting the the present order of things, the present religious and and governmental establishments before he could rise up and and restore some uh, things to some higher level or some higher state? Uh, What did he mean by all that? Did he he mean that the conflict of of freeing Israel from her enemies would be so severe that it would be like a death and and the victory uh, would take three days, would be like a resurrection from the dead? What was Jesus telling them uh, is, is that they wanted a king with a crown and what they got was a king with a cross. They just didn't understand. And they certainly didn't want to accept the fact that their Lord would be literally killed. You know, sometimes we don't want to accept the fact that death is inevitable for all of us. And so we have to learn to talk about death. Paul talked about it in the New Testament. He said this in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21 to 23. He said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain." Now, to our thinking, our human reasoning, we think, what in the world are you talking about? Death is gain? No, death is lost. I just lost this loved one. I just lost this family member. I just lost this friend. But if you're in Christ, the Bible says, for me to live is Christ." And to die is gain. He goes on to say, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. He says in verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. In other words, Paul's saying, I want to live. And we all want to live, don't we? We all want to live. And he says, but I'm torn between the two. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And so Paul was torn between the two. I want to live, but I want to be with Jesus also. Now that word gain there in those verses literally means profitable or beneficial. The last thing any of us uh, think about when it comes to death is that something is profitable, that it's beneficial, uh, that, uh, that it's good for us. But that's exactly what Paul said. He said, if your life is in Christ, then your death is Gain. Now, that's kind of a hard sell. You know, we as Christians believe that when we die, we're going to heaven, and we all believe heaven is wonderful. But let's be honest, we spend most of our life doing everything we can to keep from going there. Joe Lewis, the famous boxer of old, once said this, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> but Paul said, to die is gain. And I believe that there's something we can learn from Paul here because our desire to be with Jesus there is directly related to the degree of, uh, that we love Jesus here. Shouldn't we always want to be with the person that we love more than anything on this planet? I mean, think about it. Shouldn't we want to love Jesus so much that we always have this burning passion, this burning desire to be with him whenever he's ready to take us? That ought to be our passion. But here's something else we ought to learn. Paul didn't say he had a desire to go to heaven. He said he had a desire to be with Jesus. So how do you make that distinction? People sometimes ask, where is heaven? Well, the answer is heaven is where Jesus is. What makes heaven to be heaven? It's not the golden streets. It's not the pearly gates. What makes heaven to be heaven is Jesus. Jesus is not where heaven is. Heaven is where Jesus is. And, and that's why when we get to heaven, uh, we're not going to go sightseeing through, uh, through the city there and through, the, through all of heaven. We're going to go see the Savior. And that's why death is profitable. The reason death is a plus is because the moment that we die as a believer, for the first time, face to face, hand to hand, eye to eye, we're going to be in the presence of the Son of God. If you're truly a child of God, truly a follower of Jesus, nothing ought to get you more excited than being in heaven with Jesus. Now notice that verse in verse 23 there again. He said, my desire is to depart. That word depart there literally means to untie something or to free something. It's a word that was used to describe when people are going from one place to another. Paul made it plain that when you die, you don't go to a pie in the sky. You go to a real place that when you get there, you wonder why you didn't get there sooner. This word depart is a rich word. First of all, it's a, it's a nautical term that's used by sailors when, when they would unloosen a ship so that that ship could sail, which is liter- really a, a good for a ship because that's what a ship is built to do. The ship's not built to sit in the harbor, it's built to sail the seas. And so you see, we weren't built for this earth, we were built for another place. When we die, we set sail. That word also, uh, depart, has a military uh, meaning to it. It was a word that was used when an army would pull up the stakes of the tent so that they could go home. Uh, When a soldier goes overseas, we call it being deployed. But when his tour is over, we call it going home. Right now, we live in this earthly tent, in this earthly body. Uh, but we shouldn't put our stakes down in this world so deeply because this world, as for a believer, this is not your home. Heaven is your home. When our battles in life are over, we pull up the stakes of our tent and we go home. That word depart also has a judicial meaning to it, which referred to a prisoner who was finally freed from jail. Not to sound morbid, but let's face it, we're all imprisoned here in a way. We're imprisoned in a body that will eventually decay and is already decaying and one day will break down. We're imprisoned in a world that that is full of sorrow and death and fears and tears. But when we die, we are set free from all of that. So here's what the disciples needed to learn about death, especially the death of Jesus. The same Jesus who was nailed to the cross would one day be raised in power and triumphant victory, and so could they. Death for the believer is victory. We don't like to talk about it, but we need to talk about it more. The second subject he talks about there is is taxes, and we see that in the remaining part of chapter 17 and verse 24 down through verse 27. Now, interestingly, Matthew's the only gospel writer who tells us this story, and it seems fitting given that Matthew used to be a tax collector himself. It's the only miracle Jesus ever performed to meet his own needs. He didn't uh, use his power selfishly because others were involved in this miracle. He didn't want to be a stumbling block to them. It's also a miracle about money. Matthew, as we said, had been a tax collector, and he would expect uh, him to be interested. uh, We would expect him to be interested in this miracle. So, this tax had its origin in the days of Moses. Let's read verse 24 down through verse 27. It says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? We don't like to hear the IRS coming. Did you pay the tax? (laughs) We don't like... April April Fool's Day <laughs> begins April, uh, and then uh, May comes in. We've got that sandwiched in between with, with tax day there. None of us like tax day uh, and it coming. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Here's verse 25. He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, he said, Go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself." So notice what happens here. Uh, the original tax money here uh, was used to uh, make the silver sockets in the, in the tabernacle poles that were raised. And so subsequent taxes were used to support the ministry uh, of the tabernacle and then the temple. The money was to be used as a reminder to the Jews that they had been redeemed from Egyptian slavery. Uh, and we've been, we ourselves have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So in his conversation here Peter, with, with Peter, Jesus uses the analogy of kings who raise money from taxes. And he asked Peter whether such taxes come from the king's sons. So in other words, does the king tax his sons or does he tax the people? You don't tax the royalty, you tax the people. You tax the others. And and so that's what he's asking uh, Peter. And he says it's from others, from strangers. The point of the analogy is clear. Since God is king... And Jesus, his son, is free from the obligation to pay the temple tax uh, along with all who are with Jesus in the family of faith. If you become a Christian, you become a part of the family of God, and and you don't have to pay. Uh, Jesus paid it all. Uh, But in order not to give offense, Jesus says pay the tax. In other words, Jesus uh, is greater than the temple, and yet he still pays the tax. But why? Not because he's under obligation, but because he's securing our salvation. It's the only miracle using one fish. Jesus had, remember, multiplied the fish for Peter, uh, and he would repeat that miracle. But in this case, he only uses one fish. Think about the complexity uh, of this miracle. It's amazing. Notice what verse 27 says there again. It's one of the most striking miracles because he commands Peter, Peter, I want you to go down to the sea, I want you to go down to the lake, I want you to uh, throw a line in with a hook on it, and the first fish that you catch, you pull it up, and you're going to find a coin in it to pay the tax. So think about all the things that had to happen for this miracle to occur. Before Jesus ever said this, Jesus had ordained that somebody would drop a coin in the water, accidentally or however for it to even get in this fish's mouth. Uh, That this fish would come along and scoop it up with his mouth, but not swallow it all the way. And that fish would swim over to the shore at exactly the moment when Peter throws his line in with that hook and that he would catch that fish, not any other fish. There's lots of fish in the Sea of Galilee, but he's not catching any but that specific one. All of that happened so that a temple tax could be paid in order not to bring unnecessary offense to people whom God desires to save from sin. Understand this, Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign over the sea, and yet he graciously stoops for our salvation. It was performed for Peter. Uh, we're not told how the other disciples paid their taxes. Uh, this is one of the mir- many miracles that Jesus performed for Peter. He, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, he helps Peter to catch fish. Uh, he enables him to walk on the water. Uh, he heals Malchus's ear that, that Peter cuts off with a sword, and he delivers Peter from prison even later. Jesus knew Peter's need, and he was able to meet that need, and he's able to meet any need that you have. Peter thought, He had the problem solved when he entered the house. But before he could tell Jesus what to do, Jesus told him what to do. Remember, God the Father had interrupted Peter when they were on the mount, at the Mount of Transfiguration, and now God the Son is interrupting him in the house. If only we would let Jesus give us the directions. What do you want me to do, Jesus? Instead of us running ahead to do whatever we want to do, we would see him meet our needs for his glory. It's the only miracle that doesn't show what the results were. Did you catch that? We would expect another verse to read. Well, Peter went to the sea, cast in a hook. He drew up the fish. When he opened its mouth, there was a coin. He used it to pay the temple tax for himself and for Jesus. But verse 28 is not there. So how do we know that that miracle took place? How do we know it took place? Because Jesus said it would. When Jesus says it will, it will. And so know this, no matter what you face in this world, even with the authorities and the establishment of government that God has has given to us, uh, we are are to submit ourselves to those authorities and power. Uh, But notice this, uh, we also, we commend Peter for his faith, uh, because what we see here is uh, the people at the seashore, they were accustomed to seeing Peter sitting with a net in his hand, not a hook and a line. But Peter had faith in God's word, and God honored that faith, and we need to have faith and trust in God. We might not like to talk about taxes, much less pay them, but if we trust the king, he'll meet our needs as we obey his word. And then we come to this last subject of humility in chapter 8. Why do some of God's children have such a difficult time getting along with one another? Let's read these first verses here. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. Let's just stop right there for just a moment. Because what we're looking at here is is this humility or this issue of pride actually that had caused some division amongst the people. And, and uh, the question we're looking at here is, is why do God's children even have such a difficult time getting along with one another? Uh, there was a poem that once stated this uh, perfectly. It says, to live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live with, below with saints we know, well, that's another story. You know, with so much division and dissension in our world, much less in the church, we see even division and dissension in the church uh, amongst professing Christians. We desperately need to know what Matthew 18 has to teach to us. And notice Jesus rebuked his disciples for their pride and and their desire uh, for worldly greatness, and he teaches them several essentials for unity and harmony among God's people. Someone accurately has defined humility as that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. It's well been said that true humility isn't thinking meanly of, your, of yourself. It's simply not thinking of yourself at all. So notice the need for humility. Notice what it said there in verse 1. They're having this discussion. They're having this disagreement, this dissension. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Now think about what's just happened in the previous verses. Uh, Peter and James and John had been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So most of them are probably thinking it's got to be one of those three that's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So uh, that was an often repeated topic of discussion amongst the disciples. Uh, we find it mentioned often in the Gospels. Recent events here uh, particularly would, would bring that to, to, to play there. And so that fact that Jesus had been sharing with the disciples the truth about his, his, his coming, suffering, and death, uh, and, and that didn't seem to affect them because they were only thinking of themselves. And notice they're not even thinking about the resurrection. They're not even thinking about Jesus' death anymore. All they can think about is, is it you? Is it you? Maybe it's me. I think I'm the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think Jesus loves me more than he loves you. That's what they're arguing over here. And these disciples, they're so absorbed with themselves and what position they would have in his kingdom. So absorbed in this issue that they actually argued it with each other. What causes this problem? This is why we don't like to talk about humility. Pride. Pride is thinking ourselves more important than we really are. It was pride that led us into sin at the beginning, in the beginning of the Bible. When Christians are living for themselves and not for others, then there's bound to be conflict and there's bound to be division. Notice the example of humility, as you see there in verse 2. He calls to himself a child and puts him in the middle of them. And verse 3 says, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. The disciples waited breathlessly for Jesus to name the greatest man among them, but he bypasses them completely, and he calls this little child into their midst. Notice what verse 10 goes on to say. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. This child was the true example of true greatness. True humility means knowing yourself. It means accepting yourself and being yourself, your best self to the glory of God. It means avoiding two extremes. It means avoiding thinking of yourself less than you ought to think. Uh, Like when God called Moses, and Moses makes all these excuses why he's so lowly he can't do all what God wants him to do or thinking more of yourself than you ought to be. Like Romans 12, 3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see, the truly humble person doesn't deny the gifts that God's given them, but they use those gifts to bring glory to God. You know, an unspoiled child has the characteristics that make for true humility. Trust. That's what we see in verse 6 there. Dependence, the desire to make others happy, an absence of boasting or or selfish desire to be greater than others. You know, amazingly, Jesus speaks to his disciples who are full-grown adults who had been with him for a couple of years already, who had certainly grown a a great deal spiritually, and it must have absolutely shaken them to the core. Uh, He says, children don't need to become more like you You need to become more like them, or you'll never enter the kingdom of God. You see, in order to become a citizen of the kingdom, you have to turn from yourself and trust in the Father. You know, like a child, you you have to throw yourself at the feet of God, confess your need to Him, that you are in sin and you need a Savior. Think about your own children. Think about your children uh, wanting and needing to, to needing help to be fed, to be read to, to, to be loved, to be provided for. And, and, and you know that when they, they run up to you with their arms in the air and, and a smile on their face, what a picture that is of conversion. We also have to humble ourselves like that before God. And so in light of those truths in verses 1 through verse 4, every one of us is faced with the question, Are you a child of of the king? Have you come to the point where you've realized that God is holy and that you are sinful and therefore you desperately need a savior? Have you, like a child, left behind all that you were holding on to? Have you run to God the Father through Jesus as the only one who you can trust with your life both now and forever? That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian, to be a child of the king, and it sets the stage for the rest of the chapter where Jesus talks about the Father's love for his children and how that affects the way that we love one another, even in the church. Because by nature, all of us are sinners who want to be celebrities instead of being servants. It it takes a great deal of teaching for us to learn the lesson of humility. And these disciples, they're wanting to know who's the greatest in the kingdom. But Jesus warns them, apart from humility, you can't even get into the kingdom. They had to be converted, uh, turned around in their thinking, or or they would never make it. You know, as Christians, we're not to just accept the little children for Jesus' sake, but we're to also receive all of God's children and to seek to minister to them. In the Greek, that verb humble, it didn't describe a very positive virtue in Jesus' day. You didn't teach your kids humility because the word meant to crush. The word meant to bring down, to humiliate. In other words, here's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, the first thing you've got to do is to get over you. You're not all you think you are. You're not hot stuff. If you want to get into the kingdom of God, you've got to get over you. And to get over the idea that you're good enough to get into the kingdom of God on your own you have to get over the idea that you don't need any help from God. You've got to get over the idea that salvation is a do-it-yourself salvation, a do-it-yourself project. You know, many people don't realize that apart from the grace of God, you don't have any hope for getting into God's kingdom. And, and so you have to keep in mind just how countercultural it was that Jesus would use a little child as an example for anything good. Because in the Greek and the Roman culture of that day, children were considered not persons. The, the most valuable person in the world of that culture was a freeborn adult male. He, he had the most value. Children and slaves and women, they're at the bottom of the list. Uh, abortion was widespread unwanted children were abandoned they were left to die it was normal to see physically abuse physical abuse in children and and in Rome in, in Rome fathers would even had the the legal right to kill their children for any reason and then here comes Jesus and he takes this child from the bottom of life and the social circles and he puts him in the middle of his disciples and he says see what you thought was the bottom is the top. What you thought was insignificant is the most significant. You need to be like that little child. You need to be like that child. No one before had ever set up a child as a model for an adult. By the way, This love for children became so strong in the early church that the church was able to persuade parents to give up their babies to the church instead of leaving them to die, which led to the first orphanages. Here's what we need to realize. True humility thinks of others, not of self. Jesus explained that we could have different attitudes toward children and and consequently toward true true humility. We can either seek to become like those children in true humility as to the Lord, or we can only receive them because Jesus told us to. If we're not careful, we'll cause them to stumble, as verse 6 says, and even end up despising them, as verse 10 says. It's a dangerous thing to look down on the children because God values them so highly. So think about this, realizing the focus of this chapter makes the imagery of children in this text very powerful. For example, if you're a parent, or or if you've had a loving parent in your life, you know that it's one thing for someone to offend or to hurt someone, but it's even harder to deal with someone who hurts a little child. You can offend us all day long, hurt my children, mama bear is going to get upset, (laughs) and dad will too. That's the kind of zealous affection that our Heavenly Father has for his children. So notice the cost of humility here in verse 7 down through verse 9 at the end here. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame uh, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter Life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, what Jesus is not saying here, he's not saying that we're to have self mutilation here, to physically mutilate yourself, cut your eyeball out, cut your arm off, cut your hand off. He's talking about spiritually here that, that any of those things in our lives that, that causes others to stumble, keeps others from coming to faith in Christ, you better make sure you're, you're, you're a road to Jesus, not a roadblock. You'd better make sure that you're a way to Jesus, not a wall. Anything that makes me stumble has to be removed from my life. Because if it's not, then I cause others to stumble. And so humility begins with that self-examination, that self-denial. Jesus wasn't suggesting here we harm ourselves bodily, physically. But what he's saying here is rather that he's telling us to perform a spiritual surgery on ourselves remove anything that is causing anyone else from becoming a child of God the humble person lives for Jesus first and others next and he puts himself last just remember this to live above with Saints we love will certainly be glory but to live below with Saints we know well that's another story that needs to change in our hearts and our lives that we love one another as Christ loved us. How did he love us? See, love is the answer to all of these issues. If we love God, we have nothing to fear in death. If we love God, he's going to provide for us, even in our taxes. If we love God, then humility is not going to be an issue because you're putting him in the right place in your life. And then and only then can you love others the way he loves you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for helping us through this passage this morning of, of talking about some things that we don't often like to talk about, but Lord, is some things we need to discuss from time to time to remind ourselves of what's most important, your most important, not us. So Father, I pray that if we have seen any ounce of pride in our hearts and our lives this morning... If we have seen, Lord, any of that uh, pride that is uh, pushed out, humility, Lord, let us come to the foot of the cross. Let us, Lord, repent of that sin. Lord, if we're here this morning and we've never trusted by faith in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, maybe we've been worried about death. What's going to happen if I die? Lord, I pray this morning that that we would come to that place to realize that that I need Jesus as my Lord and Savior because I don't know when I'm going to die. And when I die, I want to make sure I go to be with you in heaven. So dear God, I pray I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on that cross and was buried in the tomb and three days later arose from the grave. Jesus, come into my heart and my life and save me and help me to live for you all the days of my life. Father, if there's someone who's prayed something like that and they meant that in their heart this morning, may they come to publicly profess that faith in Christ. Lord, I pray this morning if we're here and maybe even as a believer, we've not, we've not had the proper perspective on death even that we need to have. Lord, help us to realize from Paul this morning that death is gain for us. Death for those who are in Christ to be absent in the body is to be present with Christ. And so what, what greater thing could happen for us? Lord, we, we don't want to hasten it. We know that it's going to come. We don't want to make it come any sooner than it has to. But Lord, I pray that in the time that we do have left, whatever time that is, that you would help us to be a faithful, living example, Lord, of even that humility in our lives to bring others to faith in Christ. To be a road to Jesus and not a roadblock. Lord, bless us in this invitation time. And may you be glorified and honored as we come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand, as we sing number 320, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Will you make your way and come as the Lord lays on your heart? And if you'll come and share our announcements.
5: Uh, Ms. Rima Bell and Matt have a couple of announcements. Uh, Rima's got 40 seconds, so you're on the clock.
6: Good morning. Just a couple of things from our missions team. Uh, reminder that we're still collecting for our operational Christmas child uh, through school supplies. If you have not yet uh, taken time to pick up a few of those, there's a list across from our church office that might help you do a little shopping this week in order that we'll have those things ready for our shoe boxes in November. Just a reminder that our Friday morning ministry continues at our ministry house, uh, our ministry center next door. We have a new sign-up sheet for September and October, and I would encourage you to please sign up. If you don't do that today, you can always call our church office and give a date that you can donate a couple of hours for that wonderful ministry that we provide. Just a reminder also that September the 11th through the 18th will be our week of prayer emphasis for Tennessee missions. Uh, Our missions team has set our goal for our offering at $5,000 and we hope and pray that through our prayer guides that will be available that you'll become aware of the needs and pray carefully about how we can meet our offering goal. Thank you so much.
4: Hey, church, we had an opportunity to uh, join an FCA event and Night of Impact on Tuesday, September 13th. And they're having a fundraiser event, and I'm not able to go, but they're looking for, uh, because we do support FCA uh, through giving to them as a church, um, they're asking if, if we would like to host a table. And we don't have to pay anything to host it, but we need some people there that could be there just to, uh, be kind of represent Highland. And so if you're interested in in being at that uh, event, it's September 13th at 6 p.m. Uh, there is dinner, that is a free dinner provided, and an opportunity to uh, hear from uh, Brian uh, and Chelsea Morris. Brian is a former MLB pitcher, and he's currently the the Tullahoma High School baseball coach. And so you'd hear uh, their testimony. And be a great, you know, just a, a great event to connect and hear more about what FCA is about and what they're doing. So if you're interested in attending that, please let me know so I can add your name to the list. And and again, we need at least uh, seven. Thank
2: you.
5: Just a couple more things to go over. Um, Jordan Monroe did just let me know that there will be a personnel committee meeting next Sunday after church. Um, and don't forget, today is the last day for Deacon Elections. The ballots, um, I think there's a few out here, but there's some over here and out front, and the ballot box is out front in the main hallway here. Um, and I think that's it. Um, Awana, always needing volunteers. Um, so if you don't sign up, Miss Linda will just find you and make you do something. Um, and I think that's all we've got. So let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day you've given us. Thank you for the breath of life you've given to all of us. Uh, Please be with us this week as we go out through all uh, school and work um, and come back tonight and worship in your name. Uh, Please keep us safe. Uh, Please bless every one of us. In your name we pray. Amen.